chaotic productivity is the term that I'd use to describe the era of the band just following the release of their second LP. You'd think the band might slow down at least a little after releasing two massively critically acclaimed albums in a row, but they didn't. Maybe they should have. Regardless, the band stayed productive working on various projects that weren't directly related to their own music, touring extensively for the first time as the band and also expanding their profile in the media for the first time. The reason I label it chaotic productivity is because while they continued to push the fold and create, things were starting to crack. With an elevated profile, the drugs and the alcohol became a bigger issue. The parties got larger, and everything started to get a little out of hand. However, the effects of this path wouldn't show itself in earnest for some time, but it points to an issue that would plague the group later on. Regardless, the short period of time between 1969 and 1970 is often not talked about in full detail. There's a lot of great insight in just a year's time. This episode will take a dive into the projects the band were involved with to various degrees during the era. After the release of the band, the group opened up to more press. It certainly wasn't a crazy amount, at least compared to other groups. Also, they were one of the most sought-after groups, but still continued to reject various offers for articles, films, etc. One of the first major press pieces the band ever did was for television. By the fall of 1969, Up on Cripple Creek was played on the radio and calls were coming in from various places offering the band spots on television. They rejected a majority of these offers, including a performance on Glenn Campbell's Good Time Hour on CBS, which they turned down because, as Levon stated, they told us we'd have to sit on barrels in the back of a pickup truck in lip sync. However, one offer they couldn't turn down was Ed Sullivan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, live from New York, the Ed Sullivan Show. And now, here he is, Ed Sullivan. The Ed Sullivan Show was primetime television and an important show for the band. Having grown up with Ed Sullivan, they were scheduled on the program with Buck Owens, Pearl Bailey, and Rodney Dangerfield. Now, the Ed Sullivan Show had been broadcasting for 23 years from 1948 through 1971. It set a record as the longest-running variety show in U.S. broadcast history. The program had come into prominence in the baby boomer generation, and Sullivan had a reputation of a star maker with anyone he liked. The show often introduced a wider audience to popular performers of the 50s and 60s, including the likes of Elvis Presley, The Beatles, The Supremes, The Beach Boys, Stevie Wonder, Janis Joplin, and The Rolling Stones. Arriving on the newly constructed, a bit slightly corny, rustic country backdrop, the band came to realize it wasn't going to be easy to play this show. The guitar and bass were going through the same amplifier and they were quiet, only as loud as an acoustic performance. The sound was off too, bouncing all around. Without really being able to hear each other, they pulled off the number well enough, running through up on Cripple Creek. During rehearsal, Ed Sullivan sat on a stool just side of the stage and observed the band eating an Eskimo pie. By 1969, Sullivan was old and fragile, and Robbie later stated that Sullivan was very cordial but disconnected at the time, maybe even a bit ghostly or robotic. 
Only a few years later, Sullivan's show would plummet in views, and by 1974 he was dead, having died of cancer. Regardless, he was a legend, and it was an honor for the band to perform for him. The band somehow managed to perform despite the limited capabilities and truly showed how tight they were. Here is an excerpt from the performance. The band! So let's have a fine welcome for them. Come on! Get off of this mountain You know where I want to go Straight down the Mississippi River To the Gulf of Mexico To Lake Charles, Louisiana Little Bessie girl I once knew She told me just to come on by If there's anything she could do Perhaps most famously following the performance, the legend himself, Ed Sullivan, came over to congratulate the band and introduce them to the audience. Robbie Robertson, Garth Hudson, Rick Danko, Rick Danko's over here, Richard Manuel, and what is that, Levon or Levon? Levon. Levon. Levon Helm came from upstate New York. A cold weather drove them to San Francisco where they made their first major public appearance at San Francisco's uh, Winterland. So let's have a wonderful hand. I want to tell you how delighted we are with you. Apparently, upon arriving back to Woodstock, the police had snapped a picture of Richard shaking hands with Ed Sullivan on TV and gave the photo to him, which he kept in his wallet for the rest of his life. And with the band becoming a more relevant part of music press, their old running mate Ronnie Hawkins re-entered their lives in a somewhat unorthodox way. Rolling Stone had interviewed Hawkins, and in the years following the band's departure from playing with the Hawk, Ronnie had continued to hit the Arkansas-Ontario circuit with variations of a solid backing band. Hawkins had further established himself as the grandfather of Canadian rock and roll, fostering new talent, and had taken up living outside of Toronto in a mansion lovely deemed Mortgage Manor. This was also the place where John Lennon and Yoko Ono stayed when they came to town in the late 60s. With the band's profile being much larger, Hawkins by proxy was being rediscovered and introduced to a new audience. He also had a new album out on Atlantic that he was trying to promote. Now Hawkins gave a rather provocative interview to Rolling Stone about the band's wild youth and while they were members of the Hawks. He told journalist Richie York, We had parties, a must have laid a million girls, a few boys, and an odd goat. However, Hawkins didn't stop there. He went into detail on a number of sexual activities that Levon partook in in taking special note of Levon's endowment. He also paid special attention to Richard and stated, We named Richard the Gobbler. He was a homewrecker. Man, the working girl's favorite and the housewife's companion. And there was a lot more. But when the interview was released, Albert Grohman was irate. The band wasn't thrilled about it either. However, to some degree, they thought it was kind of funny. Grossman had threatened a million dollar lawsuit, among other things. And the band had families now, with Richard, Rick, and Robbie all married and having children. It wasn't something that they were exactly eager to talk about. But it didn't end there. 
The Hawk followed up with Rolling Stone a few weeks later and stated this. I called Rick and he was sure as hot about the article. He said all kinds of things about how it was bad for them, how Albert was upset, and how I couldn't do that to them. Hell man, if someone said I had the biggest dick in America, I'd be happier than a dog on me. And this kind of sums up the band's profile getting larger. The past was something that was now fair game, and the years of hiding and being somewhat of an enigma was cracking. Perhaps the largest piece of press they received during the late 60s was Time Magazine. In late 69, early 70, the band was approached by Jay Cox, a movie and music journalist who went on to become a screenwriter working with Martin Scorsese on Gangs of New York. Cox was trying to pitch a story to Time about the band. Now at the time, no pun intended, Time was an American weekly news magazine published in New York City. It was originally founded in the early 20s, and during the magazine's golden era, Time had the world's largest circulation for a weekly news magazine. The print edition had a readership of over 26 million, 20 of them being based in the United States. Essentially, it was a massive opportunity. The band, however, was like they always were when it came to someone inserting themselves into their lives. Apprehensive. As Robbie had stated numerous times, the band operated from behind a curtain. Publicity was a delicate balance in our circles. And Levon was famous for hating interviews, at least in those days, and the others didn't have much interest in talking to the press. They were worried that the slick media people would twist their words and misrepresent them. Jay Cox was persistent and persuasive. He informed the group that Time didn't often do anything music-related on their cover, and that the band would be the first rock group in North America to take the mantle. Over time, the band agreed and eventually quite liked Jay. He also ended up interviewing Robbie again in the late 80s. Cox hung around for several weeks, writing profiles, gathering information on each of the band members, focusing on their individual stories and how they came together as a collective. Diving into Cox's profile, there are a few seeds of information about what was to become of the band, the beginning of their splintering and their discontent and their party-hard lifestyle catching up to them all. Cox retrieved an interesting tidbit from Rick Danko and Richard Manuel. After so long on the road, going to the quiet was not so easy. Getting healthy, Danko jokes, is getting up in the morning instead of going to bed in the morning. Another member of the band describes the transformation thus, Well, we were shooting a film up here, and then we were shooting vodka. Then the first thing you know, we took to shooting fresh air. What a habit. Of course, that was said by Richard. It's not overly blatant, but you can see where the addiction and the hard partying lifestyle was starting to take more precedent over the music, perhaps. A few weeks later, January 12th, 1970, the article hit the newsstands, titled, Down to Old Dixie and Back, and the band was surprised. It was well-rounded and had contributions from other writers as well, but according to Robbie, the editors at time had trouble describing the sound. Most groups you can distill the sound down into something simple, or the artist is very direct in their influence or style. The band still, to this day, is very hard to define. It was a melting pot. Regardless, Toy timed with a few options. Canadian Delta R&B, Modern Ragtime, Roots Rock, personally I think the best identifier. But on the cover, the subtitle read, The New Sound of Country Rock. Yikes. The band never considered themselves in that way, nor did they really dig the moniker. When you aren't defined or you have any strong opinion on what defines your musical style, you get titles like country rock. 
The cover also featured a busy red cover with a villainous-like caricature of each member's head. Bob Peaks was responsible for the design, an acclaimed illustrator who had worked on movie designs for posters of West Side Story and was the go-to artist for sci-fi posters like Star Trek and Superman. He contributed work for Time and TV Guide and even designed the US postage stamps. And even though this whole thing was a big deal, the Time cover really was never spoken about by the band. Yes, it was great because it would make the group a larger draw, but it was business as usual for the group. Through 1969 and 1970, the band continued to collaborate in different ways with various artists. One of their unique abilities, opposed to other groups of the era, was that they continued to work on various projects in different capacities, even after achieving fame and financial independence. Oftentimes, they didn't collaborate as an entire group either, but rather, members here or there would work on a project. It truly allowed them to continue to flex their musical muscle and work on different projects. After the blitz of press and before the band went back on the road, Robbie and Dominique went to Montreal to visit family. This is when Robbie became aware of James Winchester. Winchester had been taking refuge in a basement of a monastery in Ottawa, Ontario, as he had evaded being drafted in the Vietnam War. A year after graduating high school in Williamston, Massachusetts, Winchester was served with a draft notice. The Vietnam War was in full swing and conscription was part of America's solution to the unpopular war. Winchester was one of the many who refused to take part and fled to Canada. Later, in 1977, he told Rolling Stone magazine, I was so offended by someone coming up to me and presuming to tell me who I should kill and what my life was worth. And while he escaped to Canada and first arrived in Quebec in 1967, he joined a local band called Les Astronauts and began writing and performing solo material at various coffee shops and the Montreal Folk Workshop. A friend of Robbie's, Gordon Shepard, a film director who later directed Eliza's Horoscope, which features members of the band as extras, turned Robbie onto Winchester. Intrigued by the idea, Robertson agreed to check him out on recommendation. Robertson later stated the weird conditions he first met Winchester. We took a train to go check him out at the monastery. A man escorted us down into a dungeon-like hallway and in one of the rooms sat a lone figure. Gordon and the guide introduced me to Jesse James Winchester from Memphis, Tennessee. Winchester was familiar with the band's music and their style, and he joined Robbie for tea and played him a few of his tunes, including Yankee Lady. Robbie was impressed and agreed to assist with helping him get signed and produce his first album. Upon Robbie's arrival back into Woodstock, he had a reel-to-reel -reel tape of demos from Winchester, which he showed Albert Grossman who agreed that Jesse had some potential. Grossman was setting up a new record label called Bearsville, the namesake of the town that Grossman had become the pseudo-mayor of over the last few years. Winchester was one of the first artists on the label, along with Todd Rundgren, who was a whiz kid who had taken role as an engineer, producer, and musician, as well as the country rock group Great Speckled Bird. Bearsville Records was being distributed originally through Ampex and Warner Brothers. Grossman was also encouraging of Robertson's desire to produce. Robbie had been learning over the last two years from John Simon while creating their first two albums. And through the trials of recording, mixing, and mastering their own work, he felt finally ready to take on the record all by himself. And Robbie had an idea. 
he wanted to record the record with Winchester in Toronto with some great local musicians. The last piece of that puzzle was finding an engineer that he could jive with to help him record. Grossman pointed out Rundgren, who had, quote, a no-bullshit approach, according to Robbie, and the two immediately meshed. With Robertson and Rundgren arriving in Toronto, they assembled a team of musicians to act as a backing band for the sessions. They employed Bob Boucher on bass, who later did work with Peter Yarrow, Tom Rush, Neil Diamond, and Bruce Cockburn. Behind the drum kit, London, Ontario-born Dave Lewis, who would play with Ronnie Hawkins from 65 through 68, joined the sessions, and on keyboard, Ken Pearson, who was a fresh face, who later went on to work with Janis Joplin, London Wainwright III, and Peter Paul Mary. Outside of the main core of musicians, Robbie also contributed to various tracks and even had Levon come up and contribute to a few sessions. With the album recording starting, Winchester came into the studio with a cold, so Robbie had to get flexible from the get-go. He started with recording Winchester's album opener, Payday, and the closer, The Nudge, because of their nasally quality, masking the cold in his voice. Here's an excerpt from Payday. The influence of the band is quite apparent on the track. similar influences of that of the band, particularly the general groove and the approach on piano. This influence is seen obviously all over the album with Robbie producing, but you can also see a lot of Winchester's original takes, like his song The Brand New Tennessee Waltz and Yankee Lady, which along with a few other tunes on the album are all kind of connected. Writer John Perlis stated in New York Times, Songs like Biloxi, The Brand New Tennessee Waltz, and Yankee Lady on his debut album, Jesse Winchester, released in 1970, delved tenderly into memories of the South that he had left behind. From that quote, you can draw a lot of similarities in the songwriting characteristics of Winchester and the band. Both artists conscious of their own specific connection with the South and interpreting through their music. And as John Perlis adds in his retrospective on Winchester, Winchester's songs were rooted in country, soul, and gospel, and they strove to stay plain-spoken. Whether he was singing wryly about everyday life or amusing on philosophy or faith. And with the completion of the record, it debuted in 1970 to strong reviews and charting at number 26 on the Canadian charts. While it wasn't a commercial vehicle, it was part of the patriotic nature of the Americans. Many didn't agree with Winchester's draft dodging, and it wasn't for years before people started to appreciate Winchester's music south of the border. However, the critical reception was strong. Ed Ward said in the August 6th issue of Rolling Stone, The album had me hooked. I discovered it during the whole Kent State Cambodia mess, when it was the only record that could pull me out of my depression, and I've listened to it a hundred times since. It is the first record I can remember making me wish I had a fireplace. I really think every patriotic American should listen to Jesse Winchester, the man who loved it and left it, because his songs transcend all barriers with the exception of one, art. And Robert Hilburn said for the Los Angeles Times, it is one of the best albums of the young year, and with the help of friends, 
as the band's Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm, Winchester establishes himself with one album as one of the most promising artists on the contemporary scene. While you would think the strong impressions of the first record would impress Winchester himself, he was bitter. I think you can see that this is highly rooted in how his life was completely changed after he fled the United States. He had to leave his family and his friends, and it led him to become jaded, justifiably so. He lashed out in the press about the record, and Robbie stated in his memoir this on finding out about Winchester's anger. I was very satisfied with the work we did together, but after the album came out, I read an interview that Jesse gave where he said the record wasn't his record. It was Robbie's record. That wasn't true. It bothered me that he would say such a thing. I had done my best to give strong direction to the songs and help make a terrific record in every way I could, but Jesse had final say on everything. Now, the band had had their fair share of run-ins with famous people in the movie business. Dennis Hopper asking them to be involved in some way with Easy Rider, among many others. Robbie also really loved films, often watching and reading various screenplays. So when they got the news that Czech filmmaker Milos Forman would come and visit Woodstock, it wasn't a surprise. Forman was a formative filmmaker who, until around 1968, had lived in Czechoslovakia. He grew up after World War II, which left both of his parents dead. His father from being tortured by the Nazis and his mother from dying in a concentration camp. He was an important member of the Czech new wave of filmmaking. Of note, his 1967 film, The Fireman's Ball, was praised by critics. A biting satire on Eastern European communism, which upon its release was banned for many years in its home country. Foreman was aware of the band's music and had just read their feature in Time magazine and wanted to visit with his girlfriend, actress B.B. Anderson, famed for acting in works by director and fellow Swede Igmar Bergman. The visit just wasn't for pleasure, but for Foreman, he wanted to talk to the band about a project. When Foreman came to town, he stayed in a rustic cabin between Albert Grossman's home and Robbie's home, and according to Robbie, Milos was charming and vibrantly intelligent. Foreman wanted to develop a film about their Times article. Presumably giddy at the idea, the band discussed it further. Robbie particularly was confused at the prospect, and upon further description of his creative treatment of the film, both parties sort of talked themselves out of the idea. You could have seen that coming from a mile away. It was hard to believe that then, and now, in hindsight, the band would have ever gone along with a project like that, nor do I personally think it would have gone past the development phase. Nonetheless, Foreman went on, to make Taking Off, which was released in 1971, his first American feature. A comedy that tells the story of an average couple in the suburbs of New York whose teenage daughter runs away from home. The parents link up with other parents of vanished children and learn about youth culture. And while the band wasn't featured in the movie, Ike and Tina Turner and Carly Simon both made appearances. The film went on to have a great festival run winning the Grand Prix Award at the 1971 Cannes Film Festival. Regardless, it was panned critically and left Foreman in even worse shape, financially leaving him without work for years before his breakthrough with one who flew over the cuckoo's nest in 1975. Again, in retrospect, a developed narrative project about the band would have been very interesting to see, but it wasn't meant to happen then, 
and we are left to wonder about the possibilities. As mentioned earlier, Todd Rundgren had become a player on the scene around the band as the 1970s approached. Formerly a member of the band Naz, a psychedelic pop rock group, Rundgren went out on his own at the end of the 60s. He wasn't pleased with the production methods being used during the Naz recordings, so he taught himself how to engineer. When he relocated to New York in 1969, he signed a deal with Albert Grossman and Bearsville Records to begin work as a producer for other groups and record his own material through the MPEX deal that Grossman had set up. He started right away working on records by Great Speckled Bird, The American Dream, and Jesse Winchester. However, Rundgren had sights on recording his first record. He had put a trio together called Runt, consisting of himself and the Sales Brothers to fill in the rhythm section. Hunt Sales taking up the drums and Tony taking up the bass. Now the Sales Brothers went on to play together and separately with the likes of Iggy Pop and David Bowie. But on top of singing and playing keyboards and guitar on the album, Rundgren also produced it. And with the trio playing on various tracks on the album, Rundgren also brought in a series of session players for multiple tracks including Rick Danko and Lee Von Helm. The fifth track on the album, Once Burned, is directly inspired by soul music and features Rundgren altering his voice to sound more like a crooner. In the rhythm section, Rundgren used Helm and Danko effectively, pulling from their days of being an R&B bar band. Take a listen. self-titled album debut in 1970, around the same time as the band Stage Fright. With We Gotta Get You a Woman becoming the hit single, the album was a moderate success. And while Run didn't last, and the album rather kind of became known as a Rundgren solo album rather than a full band effort, it allowed him to experiment as a producer and as a Levon continued to keep busy with his new acquaintance with the British folk singer John Martin. John Martin began his professional career as an artist when he was 17. He had a distinctive voice and he was part of the British folk scene in the mid-60s. And by 67, he was signed to Island Records and released his first folk album, London Conversation. However, with the release of music from Big Pink, Martin's idea of his style was completely in limbo. By the summer of 69, Martin joined by his new wife, Beverly Kuttner, a fellow folk singer, the pair headed to Woodstock to record a new album. It had intended for Kuttner to record a new album. And despite his dislike of Martin, 
He begrudgingly let the two do an album together after they spent the winter falling in love and writing songs. Martin wanted to go to the source, the place that inspired him to change his sound. Crazily, Martin was only 19 years old at the time, and this was his first trip across the pond. He took it all in and later said on his experience on coming to Woodstock. Woodstock was amazing. Dylan was living up the street, Hendrix used to arrive in a purple helicopter, Levon from the band had just happened to be in the area and ended up on the record. That's how it was in those days. He paired up with Paul Harris to produce the album. Paul Harris was a keyboard player that appeared as a session musician on several albums in the 60s through the 80s, including work for Stephen Stills, B.B. King, John Sebastian, Bob Seger, and was also a member of Stephen Stills' Manassas. Together with Martin, they produced a 10-track album that was recorded after rehearsals in Woodstock. Luckily, they were able to get Levon Helm to contribute to the album, providing drums on Sweet Honesty and John the Baptist. Martin was honored to meet Levon, and the pair became everlasting friends. Martin later stated, He was the first one to ever show me a watermelon. Me and my young wife were very innocent. He appeared with a melon the size of a house, and a knife, and a beard down to here. I thought, is he taking the piss or what? But he was genuine, and I loved him for it. Levon was the first piece of American truth I had ever seen walk through the door. He was friendly, sweet, and decent. Particularly on Sweet Honesty, the song clocks in at over 8 minutes in length, featuring a mid-tempo beat, but has a funky backbone courtesy of Helm. In a typical fashion, Levon likes to make the drum part danceable, and despite the slower tempo of the song, it grooves. It's also helped here by bassist Harvey Brooks. Listen here to the groove. much a pure pop folk tune with a catchy chorus features multi-layering harmony vocals provided by Beverly. Levon again is featured here with this tight backbeat. Listen to this. I'm John the Baptist and this is my friend Salome. You can bet it's my head she wants And love my heart only If you see me smiling You wonder why You can bet it's a private joke 
John the Baptist aren't the hits from the album by any means, but shows the demand for someone like Levon behind the kit. He adds and elevates to the music. A fun side note is John Simon also provides some work on the album. Listen to the last song on the album, Tomorrow's Time, which features Simon on the harpsichord. unfamiliar with the harpsichord sound, it looks similar to a piano, however the piano's hammer strike the strings whereas a harpsichord strings are plucked. The album, which was entitled Stormbringer and credited to both Martin and Kuttner, was an earthy album steeped in rhythm and blues with a rustic upstate New York feel. Martin years later stated on the album, I enjoyed making it a lot. That was one of the finest hours because I think it surprised everyone. I think they were expecting some little folky album to come out, and it came out with a lot of bite. It was just a little bit ahead of its time, I thought. Just room and me, a morning that makes three. It's tomorrow time. Tomorrow time. Oh, he's so soon. And speaking of John Simon, he was also keeping busy after the band's second album's release. Like mentioned, he provided session work with John and Beverly Martin Stormbringer. He was also working on another project, the soundtrack for the 1969 coming-of-age film Last Summer. Frank Perry, creator of David and Lisa, has once again discovered a cast of young talents, and once again he has made an unforgettable motion picture based on the provocative novel by Evan Hunter. It is called Last Summer. Filmed entirely on Fire Island, just off of Long Island, New York, features a story of teens exploring their sexuality. 
The film was initially given an X rating due to a rape scene depicted in the film. However, after the original theatrical cut, it was re-edited to an R rating. Regardless of the controversy around the picture, Burns was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. John Simon was hired and began arranging and recording the soundtrack at Hit Factory and Sound Recorders in New York. Based on the liner notes from the album, they approached the soundtrack like it was another character for the film. With that in mind, very distinct sounds were crafted for each song, so nothing sounded entirely the same. Naturally, John Simon included members of the band on the soundtrack album with opening the Last Summer theme, which is a beautiful tune with various strings and a strong mandolin provided by Levon Helm with a modern touch of Roxichord by John Simon. second track, Temptation, Lust, and Laziness, it might as well have been a band song. A country romp duet with vocals provided by John Simon and Levon Helm. Take a listen. Temptation, Lust, and Laziness are coming after me. I ain't got time to fight it, and I can't settle down. Temptation, Lust, and Laziness lead me On top of the vocal, Levon provided mandolin and Rick Danko joined the sessions to play bass. Later on, on the fourth number, Cordelia, Richard Manuel joins the fold on the harmonica. Take a listen. The soulful tune features an excellent display of Richard's talent behind the harp. A high falsetto vocal is provided by Buddy Bruno with harmony by his girlfriend. On side two of the album, the third track, Magnetic Mama, features Levon Helm on guitar and drums and Garth Hudson on horns. In a lot of ways, it's constructed in a similar fashion to a Beatles tune, with John Simon giving his most inspired vocal. Take a listen. He's Levon's drumming sounds like Ringo Starr's, the damp sound of the kit is uncanny. 
However, both Ringo and Levon have cited each other for the damp sound, so who really knows who copied who? The song is elevated and bolstered by the strong horn edition from Garth and John Simon. And overall, Last Summer's soundtrack is something worthy of exploring if you're a fan of the band. It showed their dexterity as musicians, but it's also like an Easter egg. With a lot of the press and other projects ongoing or done, the band spent much of the latter half of 69 on the road touring. Following the Isle of Wight, the band played in Brooklyn, New York on October 11th, 1969 at the Howard Gilman Opera House, Brooklyn Academy of Music. After the show, critic Joanna Shear for The Village Voice stated, The band remains the most significant group in rock. Shearer notes as well that the band has loosened up since their first set of performances and look more comfortable, including a funny interaction noted in the article about a fan shouting, Play all night, and Richard shouting back, Send out for sandwiches. Later in the month, the band played the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on October 26th. Starting the set was This Wheels on Fire before capping it off with the night they drove old Dixie down. Their performance was rewarded in a review by Pat McCowan in the Philadelphia Inquisitor, stating, When the band sings blue, it pulls the words from the soles of the feet until your toes curl. And this type of excitement continued for the band on the road. Sold out shows, high praise in the local papers. Like the band's October 27th show in Washington, D.C. at the DAR Constitution Hall, featuring a review from Donald Smith, stating, the charisma cannot be explained. The band is authentic. It's a uniquely American voice that must be heard. The band finished 1969 with two shows after Christmas at the Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden on December 26th and 27th with Tom Rush opening and a final performance in Florida at the Miami Rock Festival on December 29th. With 1970 coming, it meant getting back to the grind on the album cycle and their contract stipulated that they'd produce eight more albums. A steep request, so they had to keep on going. The band had hit it out of the park with their first two releases, and how could they top it a third time? It almost seemed impossible. And the process for this album would be a lot different from their first two efforts. Their sound changed, the relationships began to change, and the band would enter into a new era. Thank you for listening to The Band, A History. This was a really fun episode to do. Um, originally, I thought I'd go right into stage fright, but upon doing you know, a lot more research, I found there was a lot of cool projects, side projects that the band was doing during this time, and I hadn't fully explored a lot of them. I heard about some of them and not others. So I really wanted to chalk this episode full with some of these little kind of stories and, and things that maybe don't deserve a full episode, but um, could be compiled together and interesting to a lot of fans. I also want to take note of a couple things that's changed since last episode. It's been a month time, but a lot has uh, a lot has changed. Number one is I want to say that I've joined an amazing uh, network of podcasters called Pantheon. Uh, the link will be in the show notes of this show, but Pantheon is this phenomenal network that features a ton of shows about music and a lot about music from the era 
uh, that the band came from. So I would highly recommend you checking it out. Uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the hosts and they're amazing, um, as well as uh, in the future here being on a few of the shows. Um, second, I want to talk about a few appearances I'll be making soon. Uh, I had the great pleasure of going on the path to authenticity where I was interviewed about creating the podcast. Um, and I'll also be on uh, another few shows that I can't really comment on yet, but I will update you on social media uh, when I can confirm everything of that nature. I also want to say that uh, the new film, Once for Brothers, uh, the new Robbie film premiering at TIFF uh, in the coming weeks is going to be a very exciting time for, for a lot of people. Uh, including my friend Daniel Rohr, who directed the film. Uh, I hope if anybody's in Toronto, they can get the chance to check it out. But don't worry, it will be coming out in theaters and on streaming services as the year continues. Um, and expect some of the next episodes not to follow the rigid structure. I'm trying to set up a few different kind of cool things for everybody here, including a review of the film once it comes out. That way everybody can get a kind of a taste from a, a band fan to another band fan about what they thought about the film. Uh, so that'll be really, really fun and interesting. The third thing I want to note is with the podcast blowing up, which has been super great, and we've been hitting some of the highest charts on iTunes and other platforms in the music category, it's brought in some comments uh, from people about the show, which is awesome. I love hearing constructive feedback, and uh, hopefully some of the changes uh, in this episode are reflecting of some of those changes. But I just want to say... I'm going to be adding a correction section, not to this episode, but a further episode, or I might just put out a, just a single episode about things that I got wrong. Uh, I just want to make it clear, I do get a lot wrong. Uh, it's just the nature of doing this. When you're one person uh, trying to research, record, and do everything on the podcast, there are things that are going to happen. Uh, you, you know, some of your research might be wrong. Uh, you might mispronounce something like I did the other week with Roger McGuinn versus Roger McGinn. Things just kind of happen and slip through. I try to be very accurate and I try to remain um, definitely. Uh, I also try to make sure that the quality control is managed, but things do happen. I hope you understand. I'll do a fun corrections episode where we'll talk about some of the things I got wrong um, and I'll correct those. Uh, on that note, one thing I want you to remember is that you can rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps in more ways than one. So give a star review and a little review about what you like or what you didn't like about the podcast. Uh, either is fine. It just helps the show. And it, and also, we've curated a playlist for listeners of the show. You can find it in the description of the episode and on Spotify. I've added some new songs just this week about projects that the band have worked on mentioned in this episode, like John Martin and others. So check that out if you're interested. Also a reminder to check us out on social media. We put a lot of time into providing great content and providing unique photos. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Band Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? 
Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.